Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Episode 22, Fashing It Out. Say hello, Colin. You're here with me today, as always. Hello, Colin. I'm here with you today, as always. As always. Um, so we tried a couple episodes back to go through the Casper Plus sharding spec that has been recently released for Ethereum to try and figure out exactly um, how the infrastructure, how the base blockchain changes with the uh, shards. And we weren't terribly happy with our understanding at the end of it so in order to fix that and maybe help you out because you possibly weren't terribly happy with our with our conclusion we brought danny ryan on to try and help grok through all of the stuff the complications of it where it's going how far it's going and uh give some overall clarity to the situation say what's up danny hey how's it going i'm happy to be here um i spend a lot of time ironing out the details of the spec, working on implementations of the spec, helping other teams understand the spec and kind of coordinating a lot of the development around it. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to answer your question. Yeah, so actually I think a good place to start is, since uh, some of them our listeners haven't heard the previous episode, tell us what this is and what are its goals and where did this come from? It felt like it kind of dropped out of nowhere and then it was like, oh, well, we could do this new thing and it actually makes more sense if we just did all this together. So explain to me the thought process that led us to creating the spec in the first place and what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So we had two really kind of main scaling efforts going on um, from a research perspective and, and beginning to be an implementation, implementation perspective. Uh, this was the Casper FFG and the sharding. Um, Casper FFG was going to give us proof of stake on the existing Ethereum blockchain and sharding was going to give us um, scalability gains by breaking kind of new layers of the blockchain up into different shards. Um, both of these efforts involved validators. Both of these efforts involved um, reward schemes, penalty schemes, um, and both these efforts at the time were going to be utilizing system level contracts on the existing EVM. Um, so I was spending a lot of my time developing the FFG contract uh, and working with the team that was formally verifying the contract and building out the EIP to specify this whole thing and working with people as they were uh, building it. And we were, we were making, making a lot of progress. Uh, on the other hand, other, other members of the team and the community were working on the sharding manager contract, the SMC. Um, which was going to be doing a lot of the same things, but for managing the new shards. Uh, there are a lot of reasons that we ditched these two efforts um, for the new design. Uh, I think three, three are really the top relevant ones. Um, one is that processing cryptographic signatures in the EVM sucks. 
the EVM is very inefficient at certain things, well, a lot of things, uh, and processing signatures was going to be a major bottleneck. So signatures in the sense of, I'm a validator, and I want to you know, sign a message saying, I believe this is the canonical chain, or um, this is a recent block hash from the shards. Um, if I'm going to put that message into an EVM contract, I have to uh, process a transaction like normal, and then also validate a pretty complex signature in the EVM. This is going to be a major, major bottleneck for both of these systems. So much so that you were seeing that really high um, Ether stake requirement. So we're we're on the order of 1,000 1,500 ETH to be a, a Casper validator. Um, and this almost entirely was because of the limitations of being able to process signatures in the EVM. So by putting that high cap, we ensured that if all the ETH in the world staked, we'd still be able to process the signatures in time. Um, so signatures were signatures were a big deal. This uh, new beacon chain implementation, we get to a little bit more, uses uh, a different enshrined signature scheme that allows aggregation off chain. And because we're pulling it out of the EVM, allows for efficient processing of these aggregate signatures. Um, another reason is when we had we had Casper as a system level uh, protocol, and we had uh, sharding as a system level protocol. We had two really kind of competing games in the sense of like a economic game that these players can come in and play. Um, and with that, we had we had vastly different requirements for each game, and at the same time, uh, different different reward schemes, different penalty schemes, depending on what the requirements of the game were. And so if we had two competing games, the worry was that one, we, might, we might get large asymmetries between the two, where all, you know, if it's easier from a system requirement or the reward schedule is a little bit better of one of these games, we might get way too many people validating the core protocol and not enough validating the show where we get high shard security, but the core protocol is not that secure because of the asymmetry. And then it's it, it, it kind of unnecessary complications. And there's a lot of work and a lot of organizational stuff going on on both sides. Um, the third and, and one that's a little bit less talked about and something that less talked about because it's something that came up in my work um, and was relevant to me being gung-ho about this decision, but wasn't uh, something that had really been out, out in the community very much. And that was that uh, the Casper FFG required that Casper vote transactions could be processed in parallel with uh, existing normal block transactions. This premise, as the Casper contract was written, uh, was flawed. And we were going to have to require a major rewrite, rewrite kind of not the bulk of the Casper contract is the same, but it's going to require a lot of surgery, um, moving things around, hiding certain things, changing when certain things happen to allow for this vote transaction parallelization. And with that, there was going to be uh, a lot of the formal verification work that had, that had gone over the past four months was going to have to be pretty much completely reworked. And so that was, that was going to set back the FFG effort um, on the order of at least four months. Uh, which at that point you push that back uh, and taking all these other things into account for the reasons that we might want to switch all of a sudden it's really starting to look like if we have a better design 
let's go with the better design. Let's get this thing out. Let's do it right. Um, you know, do it right first. Do some short-term, uh, short-term pains for a ultimately mega long-term gain. So if you had yeah, to guess, that's the progression the, getting us there. yeah, if you had to guess, like I'd say the Venn diagram of overlapped work that you get to, you get to use from both projects, what percentage is that across both those projects? And how much, you, how much of that stuff do you actually get to reuse a, a, a major portion? So there was overlap in the projects in the sense of we're managing, we're both, both of the components of the project are managing validators and having to do things with validators and bonded validators. Um, both of these projects were being worked on as core protocol projects that were being built as um, protocol level contracts in the EBM. Neither of, neither of, uh, now the current effort is not using uh, protocol level contracts for the managing of things because it's quite frankly too inefficient and we want to break clean from the EBM. Uh, so in terms of research, tons, everything that we've done in the past is informing this new design. In terms of development, this is totally new development. <laughs> So this this is uh, <laughs> this makes a lot of sense, and I'm glad you guys went with this approach. So in order to sort of like get the community involved in this, the first thing you did was drop out a 2.1 a 2.0 spec um, for the Casper Plus sharding um, initiative. I don't know what to call it at this point. Um, and uh, and uh, you know a lot of us kind of went through and started to read it and there were some um, questions that we had and, and things that were raised. Um, and uh, tell, tell us what, what kind of things happened between 2.0 and 2.1 that we might want to take particular note on. I think one of the things that we particularly pointed out when we, uh, Corey and I were discussing it was the concept of a proposer and the amount of power that a proposer has um, and I'm kind of curious, you know, how the evolution has come from 2.0 to 2.1 right, right, right. today. And it's funny, as you ask that question, I'm like, what was 2.0? When did we change the name to 2.1? <laughs> um, there's, there's been some, I'd say, I think that one of the big things between 2.0 and 2.1 was the refinement of the different roles in the system. Uh, we have in the Beacon Chain, which we haven't really talked much about what this thing is. Yeah, let's, 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 let's take a step back yeah, and give back. A, 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 a bird's eye view of the architecture of what this is, right? Okay. okay. So we have, we have a blockchain. We currently have an EVM blockchain. It's a proof of work blockchain. It, it's pretty good. It's, you know, it, does what it, it does what it does. It has some issues with the EVM in terms of efficiency. We want to move to EWASM. Uh, it has an existing proof of work architecture. Uh, but what it doesn't do is it, it it's kind of it's, it's a plane in flight there's a lot going on there's pe tons of people are building on this thing tons of people are relying on this thing for real real world stuff so what the beacon chain does is it allows us to cleanly break free of the constraints of the existing evm to build in parallel it's kind of a conservative approach it allows us to kind of we have the architecture of the existing system um, and allows us to kind of build this new component of the architecture in parallel, get the new component kind of stable and start adding to it, adding the shards, adding more functionality, and then eventually 
take the existing EVM and kind of roll it into this new sharded landscape. Um, so the, the beacon chain really is the, the core system level chain, like system protocol level chain of the new sharding system. It's where the validators exist. It's where the validators do, they finalize things. It's where they get organized to do all their duties on both the beacon chain and on the new shard chain. Um, the general architecture there is, it's, the beacon chain is a blockchain. Uh, there are proposers that propose blocks and which is a subset, which is on these, during these cycles is a subset of the total validators that, that propose blocks. During a cycle, that's kind of the unit of, of time, like a, a block of time in this, in this system. During a cycle, uh, all validators get to act as attesters to these blocks to then finalize them um, in the sense of proof of stake, finality. Um, it's part of kind of part of the core Casper thing is voting on things, coming to a consensus and finalizing points in the chain. So the beacon chain does this um, for validators. At the same time, these validators play a game. The game is still a little bit, the design is still there, still, still being worked on, but the validators play a game to also build, um, to create randomness, to create a, a, a source of a source of randomness for this whole of this whole system. Um, without proof of work is interesting in that it kind of the, the process really does kind of create its own randomness in terms of like who the participants are and how they get to play. Um, with proof of stake, you don't really have that extra protocol source of entropy. Uh, so we have to design an RNG, a random number generator, into the protocol that allows us to. Um, orchestrate where the validators are and what their duties are at any given time. So, so there's that Casper mechanism for finality. There's um, creating a random number for the organizational component. Um, and then using this random number, we organize the validators into the proposers and attesters. But we also um, organize the validators across shards. So if I'm validator zero, uh, it might be my duty at this current time to be building shard uh, 100. And the RNG is going to slowly shuffle me and my duties around and everyone around such that the system uh, is kind of like load balanced and uh, controlled, controlled in that way. So the beacon chain, back to really what the beacon chain is, it is, it's the core, it's the core infrastructure for and it allows us to, uh, by kind of breaking free from the original architecture, it allows us to be really aggressive and uh, take all these new ideas and implement them in a component of the protocol that lives kind of in the same world, but slightly parallel to the existing protocol and allows us to go in, totally re-architect, totally create a new consensus, and then from there, totally recreate what it, what um, these execution layer shards are and, and how they communicate. And at the same time, the EVM can kind of exist in its, in its own world. And only when we've reached kind of a stable place, figure out how we want to loop the EVM back in. So we interviewed, um, and we interviewed uh, Dfinity a while back. And I'm assuming that like, based on the current spec that we read, the randomness is done through BLS signatures, which is what uh, Dfinity does as well. And what was an like, interesting conclusion that we came from that interview 
was that the purpose they're doing it is you're separating state from randomness, which allows you to be very um, open in how you innovate the actual state. Because with proof of work, the randomness that you that you create is dependent upon the state updates of each block, right? It's basically the final hash of all the transactions included in a single block. Whereas the BLS signatures are always going to be um, random but deterministic, but don't depend on the actual state being updated. The state being updated gets to validated and depends on the on the eventual randomness of the beacon chain. Correct. So yeah, there's an issue, right? If you say we're going to use a proof of work uh, block hash as a source of strong randomness, um, or or state, yeah, the the state as as a source of randomness. This gives a, a, a large grinding opportunity to so somebody who might uh, be able to uh, profit off of this randomness going in a certain direction. If I'm a block proposer and I just want to change, I, I can, you know, uh, grind on my proof. If I have a large enough uh, mining pool, I can grind. I could try to, you know, make a block. Uh, that's not quite the hash I want. Let me make another block. Let me make another block. And I, you know, I might miss some block rewards there, but I might have the opportunity to really uh, manipulate things via the other randomness. So important, our system is not using, so we're using BLS aggregate signatures for uh, signature, signature ag aggregation. And we have massive gains there in terms of the minimizing the amount of ETH required to stake and thus maximizing the number of validators that can participate. Uh, but we are not using BLS thresholds, threshold signatures for our RMG. Um, using Randau still? Randau, so that this is, for the implementers currently, there's a number of teams implementing RNG. We're just black boxing right now, um, so they can they can just assume they have a they have an RNG and build the system. Um, Justin Drake is spending he's a, a researcher on the EF team is spending a ton of time and resources and effort working on the RNG design. Um, the current direction of that is to use um, Randau as a weak source of entropy and make it a stronger, less manipulable uh, source of entropy by layering a VDF on top of it, which is a verifiable delay function. I'm sure you've seen a ton of stuff about that and we can get into that. Uh, or I'm sure you've seen tons of murmurs of VDFs and what are these things, yeah. uh, these new random tools that might require weird hardware and stuff. Um, so there's there's a reason that we're shying away from vicinity design and one of, one of the design requirements of Ethereum 2.0 is that it can survive uh, World War III. Uh, so ah. actually, it's two requirements. It can survive World War III, and uh, it can survive, or it's able to change when, it's, it's able to be uh, quantum secure in the five to 10 year time horizon. Um, BLS threshold signatures uh, are not, they're not quantum secure, and uh, they require a in-protocol threshold amount of validators to be online. And so I think the 50% is their number. So if for some, you know, if, if the, the case that the network is majorly partitioned, uh, World War III, they can't then create their RNG, their system halts, and they, you know, they probably hard fork and coordinate around that. Uh, but they, you know, they do lose liveness um, in that in that uh, scenario. That is a very awesome set of goals. 
<laughs> so it's, right, it's right. not just ambitious, but it's reasonably ambitious. Like we, we, we are designing the next stage of trust. And if you can't trust the network will survive major catastrophe, then it's not resilient enough to actually be deployed. So that's kind of one of the interesting things that I, you know, I personally thought Definity would be a good layer two solution um, rather than, a, and, you know. Yeah, I mean, Definity, I mean, they're, don't get me wrong, super awesome project and different, slightly different design goals and, you know, different trade-offs in terms of their RNG. We're just going down a different, uh, different rabbit hole and designing our RNG, but we've come to the same conclusion. Like you have to have a strong uh, in protocol RNG to design these systems appropriately. So Definitely. before we move on and get a little deeper into the beacon chain, I'd like to then move a little bit more into the architecture of the shards. And I'm, I'm, I work currently work for consensus and I work for status. Sorry. And uh, as doing security at status and as is well known, we recently made a, uh, a sharding implementation called Nimbus. And yes. so that team is working quite a bit on, on trying to implement this, this spec. And I've asked the guys if they had any specific questions for you. Uh, the main one was like with, with the beacon chain taking up so much of a mind share of development, what's the plan for the rest of the sharding infrastructure that needs to be put in place? Right. So um, beacon chain can be rolled out in phases, which is um, exciting from a kind of iterative development perspective. Uh, but those first couple of phases don't have, don't even have shard chain. So the beacon chain can exist. The validators can be organized, do their duties, kind of simulate finalizing shards, even though the shards don't exist, and finalizing the beacon chain and creating RNG. But that can all it's kind of like a phase zero, uh, where we've, we've gotten the core proof of stake architecture and RNG in place. And from there, we can add the, the shard chain. Um, the next phase is probably going to be adding some amount of shard chain um, to the, the beacon chain, uh, the validator duties. Uh, these shard chains actually at that point uh, won't even have state execution. So they'll be what we've been calling data blobs. Uh, we've in this design are moving towards the decoupling of the data layer and the state execution layer. So first let's come to consensus on data. Then we can come to consensus on the execution and state of that data. That that data brings us to. So, in terms of the architecture, then we can have um, shard chains that are just chains of data. Uh, the validators begin building these things. Uh, they stuff the data. They can do two, one or two things. Uh, all all shard blocks will be the same size, so they can stuff these blocks full of uh, crap, zeros, whatever they want. Um, or there might be a, a secondary market in terms of utilizing the data layer of the shard chain uh, for maybe say a decentralized Twitter or something. So somebody could uh, begin to pay for the utilization of this uh, consensus data layer. Then, and I, I mix up the phases, I don't think the phase numbers are truly that meaningful, but I think that we're in, a, in about a phase two, we bring in a state execution. Um, so we bring in a state, a, a state machine like like the EVM, but instead we're moving towards EWAS um, and construction. So a lot of the same goals there, but utilizes a lot more efficient underlying architecture. Um, so then we bring in state execution. At this point, uh, this is where things get interesting. Um, this is where you start actually having uh, what looks like in our minds, a functional blockchain in the sense that we can 
uh, resolve the uh, the resulting state of bundles of transactions. Um, and at this point, this is when you start facilitating that cross shard communication. Um, although the focus right now um, of these implementing teams is on the Deacon chain because we're going to be rolling things out in phase. There's definitely a, there's a ton of research going on on the phase one, phase two, and actually the the general design of, of phase one in terms of data blobs and coming to consensus on data and data availability proofs and things like that. Uh, these this design hasn't actually changed since early this early this year. Um, the that Phase one, phase two of the design uh, existed with the sharding manager contract. Uh, so the sharding manager contract in the previous design was really kind of like what the beacon chain does now, um, or serves some of the same role in that it organizes kind of the core infrastructure. Uh, but the actual shards that were going to be existing on the sharding manager contract are going to operate in a very similar way to what's going on and what's going to happen in phase one, phase two. So we do, we're feeling a lot more and more confident um, about the stability of the beacon chain design and the fact that our phase one uh, data data kind of data sharding is has been so stable for a long time um, we're feeling very confident about that in terms of the phase two and bringing the execution layer that's a there's a ton of really active research in terms of uh, that execution delayed state execution uh, eWASM cross shard communication uh, this is super active discussion on ETH research. Uh, but there's actually now a team, I think a, a subsection of the Ethereum J team, and maybe, and I think they, they kind of have some crossover with, uh, might be the Ethereum JS team, sorry. I can't remember. But they have a lot of crossover with the EWASM team. And they are working on uh, black boxing the phase zero and even the phase one of sharding and they're they're working on a uh, prototype of the phase two. Oh, okay. uh, so that would be okay. We can assume like they're 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 starting from the other side. They're saying okay, assume we have consensus on data. Assume we have shard chains with data. Let's start building the execution layer. Um, and so, in that sense, I imagine uh, members of the Nimbus team and members of some of these other Beacon Chain E2O teams. They probably they they probably feel like they have a little bit of blinders on unless they're like really digging into the research about the future state execution stuff. Um, but it is definitely actively being worked on, um, and something that I'd like to see over the coming handful of months really have a lot of progress and start to get some a lot more clarity on that. Awesome. I got I got one more piece to this this uh, bird's eye view puzzle of what the architecture looks like, and that is the transition mechanism from the current EVM to the beacon chain. Uh, and how that works for both uh, underlying Ether assets as well as maybe smart contract in that state. Correct. If I could add to that uh, question really quick, that's something I noticed that you're still requiring to stake in the proof of work chain. And how does that relate to all this and how does that kind of work out? Right, right. So I'll answer Colin's question first and then we can talk about the general kind of difference between these two systems, how they relate to each other now, in the midterm and, and maybe in the future. So uh, currently, no Ether exists in the ETH2O side of the protocol. All the Ether exists in the EVM. We know that. Uh, that's just a fact. So we need a way to open up this new version of the protocol, this new component of the protocol. 
Um, and in doing that, similarly to how we were going to have this like system level contract of the FFG or the SMC, uh, we're just going to have a system level registration contract where it's probably going to have one function, register. It's going to take my initialization values of being a validator, um, you know, my uh, BLS public key, uh, the 32 ETH, um, a withdrawal address, et cetera. Uh, and it's just going to be, it's going to take in that information, take in the 32 ETH, validate some of the info, and then broadcast a receipt um, or a, a log. And in doing that, uh, the beacon chain is going to be a, a light client validator. So the beacon chain needs to at least know about uh, the shard chains from a light client perspective it needs to be able to read the read and know about those receipts um, And those receipts are then going to be used to induct validators into the uh, the beacon chain and so there's there's directionality there there's and uh, To note the withdrawal address of a validator is to be to a shard um, And so this mechanism there's a directionality we have these two systems living in parallel but the ether can go from uh, system one to system two and not necessarily back, at least on the short to medium term. Um, and so that's why you do have this, this contract still coming into play. Um, and Corey, your question was more on the, uh, can you give me, give me a... And you, you're basically answering, like, what was, yeah, like, you, you, you kind of answered it in a way, and one is, like, how do we get Ether from the main, right. the, the EVM, either, right? yeah, it's a, yeah, yeah. also, actually, how does that then work with current state of the EVM mm -hmm. into the new shards? Yes, so, I actually answer a question on E3 search about the, uh, the EVM side of things, so, the validator, uh, <clears throat> that's a directionality and kind of the validation, and that, if I'm a validator, I can move ETH out of ETH 1.0 and to ETH ETH2O, but there's a question on ETH research this morning that was, okay, we can move 32 ETH chunks this way, but what about if I have less than that or I don't want to be a validator, how do I move my ETH over? Um, and I imagine probably after the, the beacon, after the phase zero launch of uh, the beacon chain, uh, we should, someone should write an EIP that proposes a, a different system level contract that's just a, you know, a one way, a one way deposit, a one way transfer from ETH 1.0 of ETH, from ETH 1.0 to ETH 2.0. So similarly, then it would broadcast a receipt and instead of, and it would have a destination shard and destination address. And instead of being picked up by the core system uh, beacon chain protocol, it would be picked up as a transaction in one of these shards. And so you would need that phase two. So you need a state execution on the shards to really have the ether over there. So that, that's gonna be a little bit further down the line. And that's the same thing for contracts in their, in their, in their state as well. Uh, contracts, a little bit complicated, uh, in the, with, I haven't spent too much time thinking about actually porting states. Cause uh, I can imagine, like, be, I can imagine taking a snapshot of a given state and then a, an associated contract on the new, whatever shard that exists and then transferring that state over and then nullifying the original state on the EVM. I mean, right, that, it's, that's, that's like a, a tough a, one, right? Yeah, because who who has who has the right to do that? Only owner, because that's what every contract is basically. But <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, we can't assume. We can't yeah, assume know. that you know this like mechanism that people just kind of use will get us over. Um, in the short term, the state of ETH one O exists independent of the state of ETH two O. 
yeah, in the medium that's what term, I was probably as well. In the long term, I would like to see one of two of thing, two things happen. Um, the second of which I'm more excited about. The first is to, uh, once you have a stable sharded landscape with state execution, you roll the EVM in as, you know, the, the last shard, uh, as a exceptional shard. It, you know, if I'm going to be a, if I get organized to be a validator on what becomes the EVM shard, then I have to, um, do things in the EVM way. I have to run, run EVM state execution and process EVM transactions, but it could live in the same landscape. This is a little bit dirty in the sense that we still have to, we, then we, we still have an EVM, but now we have EWASM too. Um, and it's going to be, you know, in terms of long-term managing uh, the software, it's not probably not ideal. We'd like to break free ultimately. Um, the second, and I haven't spent too much time thinking about it, but the, this is a little bit more more of an exciting idea for me because uh, it allows us to cleanly break free the, the architecture of the EVM. And the idea is to take the entire state of the existing EVM and drop it into a contract on a shard. Uh, I can't say, uh, WASM is a beautiful, really cool thing, and you can do a lot of transpiling between state and different things. So this is theoretically possible. I can't say that I've fully vetted uh, the complexity of doing this, but it, it's definitely a handful of researchers at this time are like more excited about the notion of forking the entire EVM, current EVM state into a contract on a single shard than to rolling, rolling, the, rolling it in as its own shard chain. Um, so, so wait a minute, on a single shard. So one shard would be legacy shard, basically. Well, right. So if you if you if the EVM became its own shard, it would be a legacy shard. But I might just take the EVM, drop it in to shard zero or shard one thousand twenty three at a certain uh, address, and so yeah. then you have to just make an interface to hit this contract. So uh, the EVM that address is an attack point. What? That address would have been, then be an attack point because they could maybe manipulate the contract just some way. Or, you know, I mean, it feels like if somebody gained control of that particular um, ability to who's deploying that address, you know, basically deploying that contract. Like, oh no, that would be that would be a hard fork. You would fork in. You would take a snapshot okay. of the like the community would decide to take a snapshot of the existing EVM chain and to place it into a contract on a shard chain. Um, Who owns that contract is what I'm asking. In a regular state chain to change to do that. Um, similarly to deploying like a, a the FFG contract or any of these system level contracts, it would happen out of fork. It'd be in a regular state change. It would put it at a particular address. Um, there's a lot of weird design things to think about, like what's the interface to this contract and how do you validate things? I mean, it's not. Yeah, like I feel like if somebody stumbles upon the key for that, that you know the uh, that would own that contract like yeah but so we could, they, we could chalk that up to future they, research is basically what we're saying how would they, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how would they stumble upon that key if it's at address one no one has the key to address one no one ever will have the key to address one cryptography our entire system is based upon the fact that you can't arbitrarily get a key to the random oh that's right your new system is going to be quantum secure correct so will accounts be quantum secure um, we are, want to move in the direction to allow quantum, allow for things to be quantum secure. Um, the signature scheme 
when we have uh, the, everything is kind of designed around the idea that a lot of these signatures can be wrapped up into uh, stark friendly hashes mm -hmm. which are quantum secure mm -hmm. on the order of the five to ten years um ah, got it the current yeah. team it's being designed in such a way that it can be replaced very very seamlessly with quantum secure algorithms um the starks are not uh on the short term they're actually becoming a lot more efficient um and in terms of size but in terms of just the ability to build them and to use them uh we're still uh you know three to five years from really getting a solid traction on that um, but but in, in that five-year time horizon, the goal is to definitely switch out a lot of these components for um, more start components. I was I think one of the few the things that I was left fuzzy on uh, when I first looked over this type of stuff, and other people had the same thing, was like, is the number of shards dynamic? And if not, how is that determined um, in, in the first place? Right. Um, so the current spec has 1,024. Um, this is a function of the amount of time. So shards have to be cross-linked back into the beacon chain so recent references from shard chains are brought into the beacon chain to be finalized when a recent reference from a shard chain is finalized in the beacon chain that serves as the basis of its fork choice rule and so the fork choice rule of all the shard chains is, is, is then premised and linked into the beacon chain um the Sorry, I missed the. I totally dropped the question. <laughs> uh, also, yeah, this it's is not so dynamic. Fun. Basically, this is what you're saying. Let's back a little bit. Yeah, so. yeah, sorry, not not dynamic. The function, yes, the function of this. So, we have to sign messages about these uh, shard chains, and it, it takes a, a minimum number of validators, depending on the total validators, to bring these messages back in. And so, if we have a theoretical maximum of validators, which is a function of that 32 ETH deposit and the total ETH out in play, we have now the maximum number of signatures we have to process, which is also gonna be a, a function of the total number of uh, shards. So we've limited the number of shards to that 1,024 so that if all ETH participated in this mechanism, uh, we would still have enough time to process signatures. Um, it is not dynamic. It is something that in the future you could add to, it would be a hard fork if that's something that the community wanted to do and something that we had vetted as possible in terms of processing enough signatures. What kind of throughput does that allow? I mean, um, with that, with that, um, have you done any sort of like, what is the maximal scaling? How many transactions do we think we'll be able to get through um, with this given a certain block size? Um, just to right. estimate. So, you know, you're looking at that on the order of thousand X, um, but you're also replacing the, the virtual machine. So assuming you're mm -hmm. doing similar work in EWASM machine, you're also looking at some multiple of gains. So you're looking at that thousand X times whatever efficiency gains you're getting from the, the EWASM machine. You also get a little bit of gains in that uh, the timing of events are um, more in lockstep because of the proof of stake nature. nature. We don't have that Poisson process anymore. And so there's, there's some marginal gains in moving to the proof of stake as well. So you're on the order of one to some multiple of 1,000 uh, X. Okay, oh. so we're talking about like millions of transactions a day. So we're talking, uh, so we're running at 500,000 right now. So that'd be what, um, 
500 million is that right wait what am i is that right per yeah, day yeah. is that you're saying per day per day yeah oh i, I remember oh. last year at devcon 3 um when Vitalik was giving his sharding talk or like kind of the future of the roadmap to Ethereum. And he talked about shards yeah. and each individual shards is kind of being the test net for future upgrades that could be rolled back in. Um, so each individual shard kind of has its like its own rule set associated with it that then feeds back into a big chain. Is that something that's being scrapped or, or, or you, are you it, planning on all shards having the same core architecture, excluding maybe the legacy shard if you do end up doing that? Yeah. Um, same architecture. The complexities that arise from heterogeneous sharding is just massive. Um, and dealing with different rule sets and, and the consensus on all these different shards and moving validators across shards, um, that is not uh, the test bed for layer one and in the, in the long run is probably going to be layer two. You know, if there's some yeah. radical, awesome thing that's happening in terms of uh, things that we want to integrate into layer one, it's probably going to, after sharding is rolled out, um, it's probably going to happen in layer two. And maybe we'll stay in layer two. Uh, but if it's something that it's so good that we want to integrate, then it would probably move into layer one rather than using, you know, shard 1024 as the test bed or 1000 as a test bed. It's kind of a, it's kind of a fun idea. Like we could imagine the functional shard that like is completely functional and like people use for certain ways or, you know, but it, it, the complexities are just, it, it becomes quickly a pretty intractable problem dealing with the consensus on these things. Colin, you look like you had something Sorry. there. I have a ridiculous <laughs> number of questions. But I'm trying to like figure out what what has been said and what hasn't. So I don't want to, like I've got like highlights all through the, the sharding spec. And That's so the beauty of just playing it by ear. You don't have to worry about yeah, going through yeah, this. Yeah, so like, kind of like going through trying to figure out. So we've gone over the validators and the captures to so be in the main POS chain, um, actually POW chain, um, you know, uh, how do you, so I think one of the problems that we originally saw was that proposers had a great deal of power in the previous system, meaning that they could actually seemed like there's ways that the proposers could influence things. And I know that was addressed. I was wondering if maybe you could talk to me about how you address that, what you, what kind of proposer issues you noticed and, um, you know, right. uh, you know, what, what the changes were there, because that was one of my main concerns when I read the 2.0 spec and I've monitored F research enough to know that you guys saw that and addressed it. Right. So proposers previously, um, the problem, the problem, the main problem becomes a proposer of the uh, beacon chain is the player in the uh, randomness game. So during a cycle, which uh, right now a cycle is 64 blocks, we have cho previously chosen 64 proposers. They're going to play this Randau game um, where they're going to be essentially revealing random seeds that they previously committed to and the um, the randomness for a future game is then going to be dictated by uh, the XOR of these uh, revealed seeds. Um, there is ends up being a pretty massive problem here in that if I'm the last proposer, I can decide uh, what I can look at what the previous proposers uh, reveals were, and I can then decide to reveal or not. So I don't I can't just make up a number because I previously committed to my number, but I could decide to show up or not, and that's going to influence the randomness. Now if I'm the last two proposers. I now have two options to do that. If I'm the last four, I have more. So 
and then if I can if I can manipulate the randomness now, I might be able to continue to manipulate the randomness in the future. And if I can manipulate the randomness of the system enough, I can now um, maybe allocate a lot of my resources to a single shard. Um, and a single shard has only you know one thousand one thousandth of the validators, and so it's a lot easier to attack and a lot easier to gain control of. Um, and so hardening up the hardening up the randomness from this basic Randall scheme uh, is very important. But also, and so we've been moving in the VDF direction uh, to harden up Randall. Uh, but another another thing that Vitalik's spending a lot of time on is okay, let's say that. Uh, somebody can get a hold of this, uh, you know, can be that last proposer, can like manipulate the randomness to a certain extent. Um, how can we prevent, uh, how can we reduce their ability to do so and reduce the effects they have? Um, and so you've seen, um, I think it was called, it was called RPJ, which is a fork choice, proposed fork choice rule. It's recently been called, uh, changed to IMD. RPJ was recursive proximity justification. Um, IMG is immediate message driven. Those are the same thing. So if you see those terminology, it's actually just a renaming. Um, so this fork choice rule is to try to prevent the power that any proposer can have um, and also the power of proposers being able to kind of uh, run short range, short range forks and change the beacon chain protocol, uh, change the beacon chain kind of fork choice. And so the design goal is the current fork choice should be a good predictor of the future fork choice. As in, if a block right now is included in the canonical chain as, as people see it, it should, in all in, in most uh, scenarios, most likelihood, be included in a future version of the fork choice. Um, and so that's, that's stability. And so this, uh, this fork choice rule is designed for stability and ends up being a lot harder for uh, proposers to kind of bypass each other and, and if I have a string of proposers try to manipulate the fork choice to try to manipulate the uh, the randomness. Um, so that's one of the components is this fork choice rule. Another component is the um, VDF hardening of Randau, which is still definitely up for debate. Um, and I know there were some other design decisions around uh, the separation of concerns between what all the power of the validator has versus the committee. And a lot of that has been um, the combination of the fork choice rule combined with uh, an assumed honest majority in committees, which are these subsection of uh, validators that then attest to blocks, uh, has taken a lot of the power out of the proposer's hands. Um, and actually the, you know, the 50% uh, honest committee is not a crazy assumption um, in that uh, if we assume two-third honest majority in or two-third two even rational majority in our uh, validator set, then these, these committees are small samplings of at least, uh, I think, 128 validators of the, uh, the total validator set. Uh, you easily get to that half that 50 percent in the committee uh like you know a billionth of a chance or something uh or one in a billion chance or something for it to not have that 50 percent in the committee so again removing power from kind of like shuffling in these tweaks 
removing power from the individual proposer and kind of shifting it towards um, our more light and likely more likely honest larger committees. So let's talk about World War III then. <laughs> so um, in the events of a major war, um, which I mean, I hate to be a negative Nancy here, it would be really unlikely that in all of human history, a war like this doesn't exist. So I think it's interesting that you guys are definitely designing towards that. The internet will be cut off between certain nation states. Now, if one of those nation states has a significant amount of staked eth in the validation scheme, that could uh, allow for other nation states to sort of manipulate or the rest of the world to manipulate um, what's going on uh, in the actual, uh, their version of the chain itself. How would we bring things back together in the events that their proposers have more power than the, the nation state's proposers have more power than another nation state's proposers and can manipulate things? So stack right. the attack. So in a, um, yeah, partitions, when we talk about World War III, um, we're talking about um, being able to survive from major long-term network partitions and also to be able to survive uh, having to be live in the sense that even if there's just one validator left on, the chain can keep, can keep pumping. Like one, one validator left in their own partition, you can keep building the chain. Um, this is solved primarily through, uh, one is to not have any component of the system that requires some, uh, some percentage of validators to be online for liveness so that the chain can continue forward. Um, so that's why we've gone a different direction for the, uh, the RNG. Another, uh, another thing that, that saves us is uh, we, we need two thirds of validators participating in the consensus uh, to finalize the chain. Uh, but on the order of, I know it was recently changed in the spec. I wonder what this time is. Let me, let me look this up real quick. Okay, so it's currently set to uh, approximately 12 days and that if a chain split happens for um, 12 or greater days, the we have two splits, uh, say 50-50 on both sides. They're both, they can both still be live. They can both still build the chain. They can both still do what they need to do, except they cannot finalize. But we have this exponential uh, bleed out or drop off of offline validators. So from the perspective of split A, you know, we have the online 50% validators. Uh, on the order of 12 days, they will become the two thirds majority and begin finalizing again. On, on, and on the same side, uh, on, on, the, on split B, we have the same thing happening where uh, the other 50%, they're going to continue to build the chain and to continue to process transactions and continue to validate. And the offline 50% uh, from their perspective will bleed out on the order of 12 days and they'll begin to finalize. So World War III happens. We have a massive network partition um, and we have validators on both sides. If the partition resolves in less than 12 days, um, these validators can then build, they can rectify and build on the same chain. You might have this kind of, a, there's some interesting things that happen that might happen there. They might actually purposely fork out uh, what happened or th there's all sorts of crazy things that can happen. But if they do nothing, the chain will resolve and be one chain. If 12 days pass, 
the chains will now have finalized uh, separate uh, histories and will now be two different chains. Um, in that case, a year passes, the network partition ends, we have we now have two Ethereum chains. Um, and from the Ethereum design decisions, that is the that was the uh, expected scenario is to have two Ethereum chains because we're prioritizing liveness. Um, otherwise, you have uh, the chain go down after 12 days. Uh, I mean, you have the chain go down immediately uh, because you don't have liveness and you probably fork anyway and probably have two chains anyway. Um, and so this is kind of an in-protocol in mechanism that allows for liveness in the case of network partitions. Let's, let's bring that scope back a little bit and look at what it means to be a single validator. And uh, right now, I guess Evan uh, Vedness put, I think, in his, in his uh, Beacon Ethereum that I think it takes around $6,000 currently to become a validator on the Beacon chain. That's gone down a little bit, or it'll be, you know, depending on the price, it's, it's, it's reasonable, right? But um, right. what are the resources and like, uh, and like liveness um, requirements for a single validator? And what are the consequences if say like, I have a power outage and my, and my validator shuts off for a certain amount of time? Right, right. So <clears throat> a really cool thing about this design is that we've moved to fixed size deposits rather than a minimum deposit. So it doesn't, you can't, you don't play with 32 ETH or more, you play with 32 ETH increments. If I'm a validator, I am 32 ETH. If I am two validators, if I want to play with more than 32 ETH, I can be two validators and play with 64 and so on and so forth. Um, but we've done this for a number of reasons. Um, internally, it's actually a lot easier in terms of accounting, in terms of uh, organizational things. If I have, uh, if I just have a list of a list of validators in the protocol, I can just move them across the protocol and assume that wherever I put them, they're providing the same amount of security. Yeah, you wait. There's, there's a waiting associated with a lot of the things you have to do. Correct, correct. So it makes it, it makes it easier from extra perspective, but it also has a really nice property in that the uh, re resources required to validate scale linearly with the amount of ETH I participate with. So if I say a validator is on um, a validator is required to be building at any time on the order of one to two uh, shard chains, if I am now two validators, I'm required to be building on the order of two to four shard chains. Um, there's this kind of they can have a little bit of overlap in that shuffling. You can just think of it as one. So a validator is always responsible for one shard chain. If I want to play with 64 ETH, I'm now responsible at any given time for two shard chains. So my resources that are required are scaling linearly. Um, and so I'm also, by adding more ETH that I want to play with, I have to add more resources to help out the network to be, you know, maybe that's, maybe now I have two separate nodes or I have one node that has uh, more resources or, um, and so that ends up being kind of this nice linear scale property that we, without, taking that into account, you, you kind of lose. Like with, with proof of work, the more you're participating and adding to the network, the more resources you kind of have to, you have to add more computational resources and probably networking resources to the, the network. Um, and so we get that property by scaling linearly. Um, now what happens, so those are my requirements. I need, for every validator, I need on the order of C resources, where C is like the standard resources in a computer. 
um, in a consumer computer. And so if I am validating with, uh, you know, a thousand times 32 E's, 32,000 E's, I need on the order of a thousand C. Uh, so on the order of a thousand standard computing resources. Um, now, what happens if I go offline? Um, if I go offline, when I participate in the protocol, I gain, I slowly gain rewards. Um, when I go offline, or if I'm censored, uh, can't tell the difference from in protocol standpoint, uh, I slowly lose rewards. If uh, I'm off, if I'm offline and finality is not occurring, then I I slowly lose rewards and it ramps up over time. So I if I go offline uh, for a long time, you know I'm I'm losing a little bit, I'm losing a little bit, and then I kind of hit that curve, that exponential curve, and I and I I bleed out pretty much entirely. So if you have a machine at home and it goes offline for an hour, you're probably fine. If you have a machine at home and it goes offline for six days or a month, you're in trouble. You're going to start losing a lot of money. Um, and so. In terms of being a validator, to be, to be a clear, losing a lot of money in terms of what my deposit is, or losing a lot of money in terms of potential gains. No, in in terms of losing your so, deposit, so you're slashing at this point. You're not being so slashing is you've done something very nefarious, and we take your money and eject you from the validator set. Um, being offline uh, is a, a lot slower of a bleed, uh, but. But it is taking away from the deposit and not potential yeah. gains. Like if I if I like turn my computer off and walk away, I lose whatever's a part of that stake. Uh, instead of instead of like having all the money that's associated with this, with this with that validator when I turn it off. Right. And if a high portion of the network is still validating and finalizing, you're losing a lot less money than if like fifty percent goes offline at once. Um, but you are losing money over time by not being online. So there's a lot of considerations. You know, what does a good validator setup look like? Does it look like one computer at my house? Maybe if you have uh, one validator and you, you know, you've you're, you're around a lot and you can, you can monitor it. Uh, but maybe, maybe your setup looks more like I have three machines in different locations and these machines have, you know, can talk to each other and come to a consensus before they sign anything. So, you know, maybe I need two of three of my machines to sign messages and then they brought like to agree and then they broadcast. And if one of them goes offline, I'm fine. Um, that I'm, I'm kind of I'm really curious to see what the what the different setups are, what the different solutions are and, and kind of how people choose to address this problem of, of being live, because it's, it is different in the, in the proof of work. Proof of work, you don't have any you have you have opportunity costs if you go offline. You don't you don't have the. Uh, the losing of your investment, you know, your machine doesn't slowly break down. Well, it might, might but over a long enough time, but your machine doesn't slowly break down just because you stopped validating. And whereas if your 32 weeks stops, stops validating, it's kind of like your, your uh, machine starts breaking down, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's a different, so that's different game. Kind of like, I'm still not clear on. Maybe you can help me out. I'm invest. I, I, I stake in the proof of work chain. I stick 32 ETH in a contract. Um, hey, this is this is my validation. I'm I'm there for good, or is there ability to stop validating? Um, right. So in, is there um, a rule we can set up that if I go offline after this amount, I can automatically pull myself out? Um, right. So we because we're doing this kind of assumed 32 ETH accounting where I can assume everyone's kind of the same. 
uh, we've been discussing a mechanism that if a validator drops below a certain threshold, they are kicked out. Um, and in that sense, it's, it is a little bit more protective mechanism for the validator. And it also is more is protective for us because we can we can still operate under, under that assumption that all my validators are the same, the same weight. So in that case, uh, say you set it at that you know, 28, 27 um, still to be determined. This is, but this is kind of because we want the property of being able to assume everyone's the same weight, we also need this kind of ejection mechanism. And so I, I did misspeak mis a little bit. Um, validator rewards are not, you're never driven to zero. You're driven to that minimum stake. Um, required to still be a participant and then you're ejected. Uh, so why you're ejected. is the minimum stake 32 ETH? Why so is why can't I stake over 32 ETH and then my minimum is is like that that to me makes more sense. Um, we've been talking about 32 ETH because that's your stake in the game. That's your network. That's that's like saying, hey, if I drop below this, I'm eradicated. Like I need to make sure that my stuff is in order. Otherwise I'm a bad validator. Right. Um, so we can we you can imagine uh, what we're proposing is pretty much the same thing in that, say, the absolute minimum you can still operate with is 28, but you have to come in with 32. Um, I know Justin is, is a proponent of being able to top off. So, like, say you were offline and you've gotten down to 30 ETH, but you, you want to play and you don't want to be at risk of being ejected and then going through a, a four-month withdrawal period, which would just be like a standard logout. Um, you might then have the opportunity to top off. And like add two or three and, and go to that 32 or even 33. Um, so you have the you have the right intuition that there is there's this theoretical minimum, but we want everyone to operate. We want to, we want to start people above that theoretical minimum. Um, yeah, because you know what? So like all your math is based around the 32 ETH representing a certain percentage of the current circulation of of total supply. I guess I should say of not circulating supply, but total supply of ether available on the network. And that's all based off the 32 point, right? So it actually, wouldn't that need to be a little above 32 to be a minimum staking? And then 32 is the threshold you shall not go below so that we can ensure that the math is still correct? Or am I misunderstanding that? Um, so the, the math is such that, um, yeah, so the, the math is if all ETH validates at 32, then you can still process all the signatures in the correct time. Um, validators still have to uh, to participate. They still have to they have to start at that 32. But if they are then if they bleed out to 28 and then leave the validator pool, that four is gone. It's burned. That's what so I was about wanted to ask. I wanted to know what happened. You're actually, to that. you're actually reducing. Yeah, yeah. Like, why don't they distribute that as network rewards then? Like, why is it burned? Why is it not like, uh, like recirculated? Um, well, there's a problem if you if you start giving that all to say the validators, uh, the other validators, then you have incentive to censor, um, and you can now grief validators. Like, if I'm a yeah. if I'm a majority coalition, I might then be like, well, fuck the. Oh, sorry. Uh, it's okay. Say whatever you want. It's no, fine. We fucking curse all the time, bro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, screw this other one third. Like, let's take all the rewards. Let's just censor them. So you yeah, start can... having pretty uh, perverse incentives there. It increases um, the, 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 the it increases the possibility of like you know uh, game theory around it, right? So like if if you have right, a right. large validator set, like somebody who's just like I want a, a shitload of validators, and they say mm -hmm. I would like to then get more money they, and they have the resources to then censor other people across like if we think maybe governments are doing this they can cut yeah. off the internet right and then if that if that 
particular subset of people can no longer validate, then all of their resources get redistributed across the network. If they're a big portion of that network, then they get more money. So it's like you don't want to you don't want to give people the option to have those games. Right, and essentially by by reducing supply, um, a burn is equitable is is at least proportionally distributing value to mm. all ETH holders. Yeah. Whereas a giving to the validators uh, is only giving to the validators and giving them an incentive to uh, do bad things. Um, you could definitely imagine uh, the community coming around some sort of proposal to make some sort of dev fund or, you know, like, I, I don't, there's, there's tons of options there. Um, it's a matter of if people want to do things with that, that I've, I've seen EIPs to be like, uh, let's use all the ether at the burn address to like make a community fund. And that, you know, it's interesting. It's not something that I'm, it's kind of a core protocol developer. I'm like, let's just get everything right. Uh, I don't really want to think about like the governance around, uh, you know, redistributing burned ETH, but you know, it's a, it's a open platform that the community could decide to fork and do random things like that if they're so inclined. Like, is this becomes particularly dangerous to, um, <laughs> I love the World War Three scenario because it's, it's like, <laughs> In the events of a World War III scenario, you have all these validators in a nation state, and let's just say that it has nothing to do with a uh, network partition and the people are cutting off, but literally what's going on is that network outages are going all across the you know the globe. Um, validators are getting burned and, and money is being hit pretty directly by, actually in it's directly being hit through violence, but, or maybe even let's just say, Okay, let's just remove the whole World War thing, three thing and talk about climate change, which is something I'm particularly worried about. Oh, you know. Major catastrophe happens, Yellowstone National Park blows up, whatever. Um, you know, was it Yellowstone, whatever. Yes. And, and like we have major, you know, super volcano event or something, network outages are random, we have solar flares or whatever. These are things that can happen and can impact a particular nation or even of the globe. And it's not even related to World War Three. It's just sh shit that happens that that will eventually happen. It will be a catastrophe. Catastrophic scenario. Yeah. yeah. Now, all this value that is being stored in validators are, and by the way, I foresee a lot of a lot of people investing in validators. Um, it will be burned, and that will hit the economy in some way. And that you know the total uh, the total value of per ETH will go, I guess, up. Um, and so individual holders of money who are using this as some sort of way of paying for their average, you know, their, their, their milk, because the value of the of ETH has gone, has kind of been hit. There will be some immediate economic consequences surrounding the, the, um, the fact that this, this is burned. Um, I don't, no I, don't longer, right? I don't think you, you can think build a system of all of, of, of rules that covers catastrophic events completely, that just completely ignores the decision-making process of the aftermath of those cat catastrophes. Like in this scenario, say it, it is burned and the price of ether goes up. I would hope that there's be a social, like social um, rally around getting help to those people based on the new money they just got from all the burned ETH. I mean, I, I would hope, but like. Right. And, and sure, if we burn 10% of ETH with nothing else happening, I would, I would think that the value of individual ETH would go up. But you're talking about ETH burning in a, in a catastrophe. Yeah. Where you're having you know, <laughs> yeah, relative. Like there's so you're many right. variables right. coming into play. You're right. But you're that, right. that would be maybe a pot, you know, that might push it up, but who knows what the hell's going to be pushing it down. Yeah. I just see, I see there possibly, I, I just do see that it being reasonable to consider the idea of instead of burning, that we put some sort of vote mechanism in there for recovering that ETH on a regular cycle. 
Yeah, man, um, right, right, right in the IP. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well played, sir. Anyway, I, tend, I tend to go to Jupiter in these things anyway. So um, that's that's actually another question I'm kind of not clear on, and maybe you can help me out. Um, if we're staking in the proof of work chain, at least initially, and so, uh, I think you're you're depositing from the proof of work chain. Yeah, I, I, you're not that you're really you're in the beacon chain. Like you have okay. exited the proof of work chain and you've you've entered the beacon chain. Yeah, so I, I thought that was the mechanism in general. I thought it was a burn on the on the EVM and then a basically a hey, congratulations, you burnt. We have proof that you burned something. You're now on the beacon chain. Is that yeah, and 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 burn in the sense that it no longer exists in the EVM and it exists in this other separate part of the protocol. I like to use the term uh, directional deposit or one way deposit, but you know. Okay. So the, the question I'm having is, are we setting up two Ethereums? How is this different than some sort of fork? Meaning that the proof of work chain still runs the proof of, you know, proof of work based, you know, contracts. Hmm. Are we going to force everybody to start operating contracts on the, like, because state is not going to be automatically transferred um, based on what you said. So is this not like two separate Ethereums at this point? It's transitional. It's, 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 a, way yeah, to, it's yeah. a way to gradually upgrade. It's transitional. Um, at, at first, it looks pretty separate, um, and yeah. for for purposeful uh, purposeful reasons, because it allows us to really innovate on this ETH two O. Um, but in the in the even the shorter medium term, uh, we can actually utilize the beacon chain for uh, positive things on the proof of work chain. I didn't mention that part of the beacon chain protocol is to when a when a uh, block is proposed, we bring in a proof of work hash reference, a recent proof of work hash reference. Um, and in doing so, when we finalize the proof of stake chain, we can choose to defer our proof of work fork choice to the proof of stake chain. Um, very, pretty much in the exact same way that the Casper contract was going to become the root of the proof of work uh, fork choice, the beacon chain can then become the root of the proof of work fork choice. And so in that way, um, when we've when we're happy that the beacon chain seems to be a stable protocol, uh, we can then gain we can take some security gains from the uh, the new beacon chain protocol and kind of begin to more tightly couple these two things. Um, and in the long run, yes, it's going to require some sort of fork to ultimately decide what to do with the EVM chain and, and where to place it in the uh, the E two O chain. Um, and and like I said, you know, the EVM chain is a, it's a, it's a plane in flight. Tons of people are building on it and we want to like, we want to keep that, keep that momentum going. And at the same time, uh, build out this new infrastructure and then handle, uh, our community, you know, excite the community, keep the community going strong on ETH 1.0. And then, um, on the medium term, start transitioning and moving the community over. And Corey, you, you brought up a, a couple, you brought up a question earlier that I didn't quite get the answer. Um, and we answered, the simple answer was uh, ETH 1.0 state doesn't exist in ETH 2.0, except maybe in the future uh, when we roll it into a contract or roll it into its own shard. Um, but on the on the medium term, when the uh, ETH 2.0 state execution exists, I might say I'm Augur. Uh, I have a token. I have this prediction market contract. Uh, and I have a, a user interface that builds these contracts and allows people to uh, participate in the prediction market. Um, I can I can do I can easily uh, redeploy that contract in ETH 2.0, and I can make that that user interface now show the ETH 1.0 prediction markets that are going to be 
uh, moonlit eventually when they all resolve. But I can also show the ETH201. And I can also, when, when people make a new prediction market, I can make the default point to this new contract in ETH2O. And so I'm like gradually transitioning my community over. I also have a token. There's some complexities there. Like how do I, Augur actually, I think, I think they hard forked their token before, right? I think they had an issue. I think they yeah. had a bug. It was written in Serpent. And they, they orchestrated a community fork to essentially take a snapshot of the balance and create a new contract. Um, Augur might choose to do something similar. They might say, okay, we're moving, like we're doing it. Or as a community, we're gonna go to E2O, we're gonna make a new contract and we're gonna take a snapshot of the balance on this date. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of like social complexity there from, mm -hmm. from a technical standpoint, um, it's, not, it's not massive. Or Augur could say, E2O is great. You know, we're happy here and we're going to wait until we get rolled into sharding on the, on the longer term. That's you know, kind of the beauty of it. Each project can address that type of thing and, and respectively to the, the complexity of their, of their platform. It's a beauty. Right? Yeah. It's a beauty, but it's also, a, it's a, it's a pretty serious complexity in the sense that as, as long as you give people, them a path, if you give them options yeah, and a path yeah. to upgrade, then they can do that appropriately. Okay. So what if you have to pause your app for a week in some circumstances, if you're doing a massive upgrade? Or you, you yeah. make choices to do it gradually in a, in a way that, you know, is seamless to the end user. And there, there's a lot of ways in which you can do it if the paths are there. And it seems as though Correct. you're making them. Correct. And I, I hope that tools, best practices, and a, a very, you know, rich community discussion on how to do this is going to, going to emerge when, it, uh, when we get there. Um, you know, it's, it's going to be so great. Something that's, something that's still kind of like perplexing me, and, and maybe I've, you did address this, I just don't understand it yet, is um, it still feels like you're creating two Ethereums. Um, so the value on the beacon chain is separate. The, the economic value on the beacon chain is separate from the economic value on the proof of work chain, at least initially. So <clears throat> right. wouldn't so, there be yeah, two yeah, marketplaces people... and another, it'd be basically ETH2 token, ETH2 you have or some something? People that are concerned about the the difference between that right because we have at least on the medium term uh a directional movement of ether from one side to the other side of the protocol um now so first it's just through validation and so you have uh but at that point which is kind of another interesting thing we can talk about that validators can can actually withdraw they can't go anywhere so they just need to keep validating right. um not for a while State execution doesn't exist in sharding. Um, but when state execution exists in sharding, I would like to see a system level contract that allows people to also deposit over into the sharding. Um, so at least from the standpoint of, uh, there's at least a directional opportunity for arbitrage um, in the sense that if ETH uh, 2.0 ETH, if, if, the, if the ETH in the ETH 2.0 landscape is uh, overvalued compared to the ETH 1.0, um, you are going to, you're going to very quickly see people transferring over that bridge into the ETH 2.0. Um, and in my, uh, prediction, in my opinion, uh, it's not going to, that asymmetry is probably not going to be in the other direction. Um, but you could imagine it, uh, you could imagine there an asymmetry between the two. Well, uh, because of that asymmetry, it kind of makes me curious why you're going to release some phases rather than just release on a test network. Um, and, um, and, and basically just do everything on the, I mean, obviously you're going to be doing a test network, but like, why not have like the E2O test network? And then when everything's finalized, we know everything, how everything works, how it all interacts. We're 100% mm -hmm. 
where we need to be, then you start, you know, because like you, you keep, I'm not sure, maybe I misunderstood the process of the phases, but to me, it seems like if you were to roll this out in minor, you know, hard fork phases, like that would be kind of problematic in, um, in, in, the, in the sense that you're, you are fracturing the value of Ethereum on the proof of work chain to basically create a new currency. Um, so again, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not quite as concerned as you are about that, but, uh, <laughs> because you don't learn a lot of things until you have, uh, a real network. Mm. Um, a lot of these things that we're going to be doing, we're rolling out a new P2P layer, um, a sh essentially like a sharded P2P layer where people can, um, tag their messages. So like, am I talking about this shard or that shard? Am I, am I referencing this? So I can then, uh, if I'm assigned to be a validator on shard one, I can then like subscribe to the shard one topic. Um, and so there's a kind of these partitions in the P2P layer. Um, and this is, you know, we're using some really interesting software, probably from the P2P and it's like, uh, we've oh, been man. doing a lot of simulations and a lot of experiments to vet, but a lot of this, like it's, it's new stuff. And if we wait until, uh, everything is ready to go on a, on a, on a test net. Um, I don't think that we are truly have, going to be able to have vetted a lot of this stuff at scale. Whereas if we do it incrementally and we do it in a way that it's pretty isolated from the original protocol, um, but still are putting in value and putting in the opportunity to make money um, for these validators, we're incentivizing validators to essentially join the real network. Uh, we're going to see things that we're going to see these uh, new things operate at scale and, and figure them out you know, figure out the, the bumps and issues along the way. Whereas if we wait until state executions, you know, shard, beacon chain's ready, shard chain's data availability is ready, uh, state execution is ready, cross-shard communication is ready, and then we roll it out, only then are we probably going to see some of these problems really come, come out and scale. Um, and, you know, we're going to be dealing with problems on the fly and all the problems on the fly rather than iterative problems on the fly. Um, another interesting thing is... Uh, it's kind of cool is that the, the validator rewards scale uh, with the square root of the total ETH validated. So these are numbers are very much up in the air. This is just an easy number to think about. But say 10 million ETH, when 10 million ETH is uh, validating, validators are making approximately 5% returns per year. If only 2.5 million ETH is validating, validators make 10% per year. If 40 million ETH is validating, validators make 2.5%. So this, this scaling, um, so we have this kind of early adoption of the beacon chain where uh, validators, there's a lot of risk associated with it. Validators can't even uh, withdraw yet. So you have to really be like an early adopter eager to participate in the system. So you might not have that, you might not have nearly as much ETH come up to participate at this point in the protocol. Um, but the validators that do participate might get crazy gains compared to uh, a year down the line or two years down the line when the protocol is more stable, more features you can withdraw, then more ETH is going to show up and you might have um, much lower uh, returns because, the, you know, the risk, the risk and time horizon is much different. Um, and so I, I <clears throat> you might have on the short and medium term strange asymmetries between the values of these two sections of the system. You, I keep saying, you know, sections and subsections and different components of the protocol because I, I truly do, I see this as one protocol. Um, I see this as kind of a, a road to get from point A to point B, but all under the same umbrella. Um, 
And you might see some, you know, there's going to be some growing pains and there's, there might be some asymmetries between value of the, some, the components of the section, but uh, rolling out iteratively is, is the more prudent and conservative uh, approach that's, I think, going to get us safely where we're trying to go. I would, that's awesome. Thank I you would for call addressing it, that. Yeah. I'd call it okay. like building infrastructure for an entire ecosystem. Like it's, we're trying to build different paths and different roads and upgrading them in various ways, but ultimately we're serving the same people. And that's, I think, what like we need to keep in mind is that at the end of the day, this is like a group of people and we're just building tools to help them do shit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really like the idea of validators investing in the future of Ethereum. Um, I think that's one of the feelings I got early on because I bought Ethereum between 2 and $3. I felt like I was investing in a network that was, you know, going to go places. I believed in it. Um, and, you know, right now it just feels like you're playing with currency, you know, you're playing with tokens, blah, blah, blah. But that's actually feeling, again, like you're investing in the future of Ethereum. You're taking your money and you're putting it, you're, you know, putting it where your mouth is. And you're hoping to gain some rewards as a result of that. I feel like that's a really wise way to look at it. And so they yeah, again, the early, the early adopters of the Beacon Chain validation protocol have, you know, the opportunity to probably see higher gains than, um, than the later adopters. So. Yeah. So I have a couple more questions, um, and they're more implementation questions. Um, they're 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 not really complicated, I don't think. But I, I noticed that a <laughs> slot was selected as a period of eight seconds, and I'm just kind of wondering where that number came from. Uh, we like powers of two. <laughs> okay. If you've noticed, uh, pretty much everything's a power of two. It makes the uh, math fun and nice. But uh, <clears throat> we are. Based off our network simulations and based off the requirements of the network, we believe that eight is probably going to be, um, at this point, we believe eight is going to be an appropriate number. When we actually get a test net up, uh, we might find that, uh, you know, under maybe optimal conditions, it's okay, but it, maybe it degrades quickly if, if the network's not operating under optimal conditions. And if we find that, uh, we'll adjust that number accordingly. It's our best guess right now. Okay, and another thing that I think we need to kind of go into for our audience, because we probably should have gone into it a little earlier, is the difference between active state and crystallized state um, uh, and what that means. Um, so that they could kind of have an understanding of, of what crystallized is. Right, so um, crystallized state is, um, we have this notion of a cycle that's kind of, so we have, we have slots, which is eight seconds. We have, uh, in which a block can be proposed per slot. Sometimes you can have missing slots, you know, where you didn't have a block proposed. But then we have a cycle, which is um, 64 slots. Uh, for accounting purposes of updating the state, we we only really update like the big bulky state, which we call the crystallized state, every cycle. And so every cycle, we're like, okay, what happened? What do we have? What happened in all these blocks? What what attestations do we have? So which which operate kind of as Casper votes. So like what 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 on these cycle boundaries can we finalize, justify? Uh, what cross links can we update? Like the big the big work we do on these cycle boundaries, and we update it in the crystallized state. The crystallized state, you know, is a much larger state. The active state is really just the accumulation of all the just the little things that are happening in the blocks. So like a, a block comes in, primarily the bulk of the work of processing a block is, are all the attestations in this block valid? So we process the signatures. They are, we add these attestations into our active state. 
um, and we do the bulk update on it when we get to the cycle boundary. Um, and so by separating the state, it actually helps us. Um, so by putting these things into a state, uh, it helps us serve light clients and helps us people kind of like follow the, the protocol without having to validate everything. Um, and so we kind of chunk everything into the active state so that we can at least serve it to people and prove things about it. And then we do the big update uh, in the crystallized state, and then we can also serve you know serve things based off of that state route to other people to prove things about it. Yeah, I figured that and would be like a checkpointing mechanism. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. The crystallized state kind of grows with the size of the number of validators I notice, and it seems like my basic math says it's going to be probably around the size of 600 megabytes for just the every crystallization. Is that accurate? Um, that sounds roughly accurate. It depends on the uh, the number of validators. Um, and we were talking about this the other day in terms of what, say I'm a validator, what do I have to keep around? Um, the naive the naive answer is I only have to keep around everything since it was last finalized. Um, but that actually isn't going to help me uh, catch bad validators. So like if people do something nefarious, I want to be able to notice it and uh, prove it to the chain via slashing condition, um, via slashing message. And so in that sense, I probably want to keep more on the order of uh, the things that have happened in the past four months. Um, and so I'm, you know, a lot of, a lot of this, and primarily I don't have to necessarily keep the crystallized state as every chunk. Like I don't have to keep exactly this crystallized state, exactly this crystallized state. I'm actually probably keeping references to attestations from the past four months crystallized states rather and I can rebuild each crystallized state as needed if if I need to. That's some implementation details around that, but it the state doesn't uh because we're not doing you know because of the trans you know the lack of uh transactions and kind of arbitrary state execution the state doesn't really blow up in the same sense that uh, uh you know the EVM or or even a shard chain could over time. Now does this this when you say attestations, you only care about the beacon chain side. Do you care about what's happening on the shards itself? Um, I, do you need to keep all 1,024, was it 1,024 shards? State uh, updated or, because uh, state's not just going to exist on the beacon chain, it's going to exist on all these shards. And yeah. this also brings up another question that we probably should have addressed with cross-shard communication. Um, but like, how how are these validators validating uh, you know, are, are, is it across all shards or just the shard they're interested in? Right. So I'm a, when I'm a, the RNG is going to shuffle me. Um, it's going to tell me what shard or shards I'm responsible for. It's on the order of one to two shards at any given time. Um, and my responsibilities on that shard are to build and attest to that shard. Uh, to, so kind of do like a, kind of, it kind of mirrors what's going on in the beacon chain. Um, and so, but my, my, I'm going to be shuffled much slow, much more slowly onto these shards than uh, I'm shuffled around on the beacon chain in terms of my cross-linking. So I, I might be on a shard anywhere, you know, from you know two to two weeks to a month and a half. I might actually be on a shard, and so in that, and, and I'm also shuffled. Validators are shuffled continuously and slowly, so I don't just get to the end of a month and be like, okay, everyone switch shards. You know, it's like, okay, validator zero. At, you're now over here, and then some time passes. Like a validator one, you're now over here. And so doing that, you get a lot more stability in who has the state of each shard. Um, and my my role uh, is to build these shards, but also as a committee, when I'm attesting to these shards, I have to um, I have to sync the shard 
I, from the last crosslink, I have to sync the shards, and I have to say whether the I have to the things that I'm crosslinking in. Um, I have to actually stake and attest to the fact that the data is available. Um, and so there's there's a whole other kind of component of the consensus. There's a, a, a game around uh, attesting to the availability of shard data. Um, and so you have now uh, the validators not only saying this is the crosslink and not only saying we should finalize the beacon chain here, but they're saying, oh, and I stake my money on the fact that this data is available. Um, and so there are my requirements because I'm I'm always validating um, I'm always validating on the order of one to two shards and I'm always attesting to uh, a shard at a time. Um, I'm kind of constantly have I need to have the resources of one to two to three you know on the order of uh, a few shards of of data around um, and so my requirements are going to always be, I have the full beacon chain, I have uh, at least like what would be considered a full sync, but it could be like a prune full sync of a shard. Um, and uh, and I have these snippets of state from the various shards that I've had to attest to and also attest to the availability of the data. So I'm, you know, I, I still have on the order of C resources requirements, but not, um, you know, which if the shards are getting big, I have on the I have to you know be able to handle the the shard state. Um, but in a in a, a pruned way, you don't have to necessarily be a uh, archive archive node on these shards. And so just to clarify, you're 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 believing that each shard would have its own state. So you would deploy a contract to a a shard and only one shard. Um, is that correct? Yes, unless I wanted to deploy a contract to multiple shards. You can do that, but you'd have to then rely on cross-linking, cross-link and um, mechanisms to actually share value between those two. Uh, yeah, cross-share communication. Yeah, um, what's, that, what's that looking like? <laughs> super active area of research, exciting area of research. Um, in terms of asynchronous cross-share communication, solved. Not a hard problem. Um, but you have, you end up with kind of a large latency in that if I'm on shard A and I want to communicate to shard B or transfer value to shard shard B, then I uh, essentially say so on shard A. Uh, a receipt is created that can then be consumed on shard B, but it can't be consumed on shard B until what I my transaction on shard A is finalized via the beacon chain. So it's until a crosslink is brought into the beacon chain from my shard A. Once that happens, uh, my receipt can then be consumed on shard B, and then that cross shard, that communication can happen. But then if it has to communicate back, then we have to do that, you know, do that again. And, and these things are happening on the order of uh, a cycle or multiple cycles, which is, you know, on the order of eight, 10 minutes. And so for a lot of things, maybe it's okay. Maybe it depends. It really depends on the use case. Uh, it depends on how user facing some of these things. It depends on the requirements of the system. But cross asynchronous cross communication can happen. Um, not too difficult. A more exciting area of research is uh, synchronous cross communication. And 
it's not something I spend a ton of my time thinking about. There are a lot of people thinking about it. Um, but the, it's the idea of can we do better than that? Um, can we, and there's some really interesting work in the, uh, like, essentially probabilistic state execution. It's like, maybe the receipt will be consumed in the future, but can I probabilistically at this point assume what the state is going to result in and how much can I assume that? You know, am I 99% sure? 99.999? If, if I am, then like, okay, cool. Let's just assume that it happened and I can yeah. continue forward. It's kind of like optimistic UI updates if you want to look at like the front end world of, of what the hell that works. Right, right. But then there's there's also other potential things where you add stuff to the protocol in the sense of like, I might add, uh, there's a really cool ETH research post recently from Vitalik that's like, when I make a transaction, uh, that's going to be a cross shard transaction. I also specify everything that's going to touch. And so by doing so, um, I can kind of like isolate this transaction from other potential cross shard transactions. Um, and the kind of the validity of the transaction can be premised upon the fact whether it was included in a block that didn't have any other things that was touching what it was going to touch. Um, again, I'm not, that's about as much as I'm going to say on the synchronous cross-shard <laughs> communication, not something I've been spending a ton of my time thinking about. So uh, that, that brings up kind of another thing that that's kind of, I'm going to address a contract in this system. Um, the contract exists on ash shard. Okay. So I need to mm -hmm. say this contract at this shard, or right. is the contract just known across the network in, in the beacon chain? It has some sort of reference to where the, where the, where the contract exists. Um, um, yeah, the, the address space uh, and how these things are addressed need to be locked down. Um, it would probably be a combination of shard ID and address, and that's where things would live. Um, there's a lot of things to consider in terms of uh, user interface. A lot of this, like, I don't want my users to think about this. I don't right. want them to have mm -hmm. to do this at all. Um, and the next phase of like, you know, web3.js and web3.py, I need to really uh, consider what we want to expose to our developers. And then developers really need to consider what I want to expose to my actual users. Um, and there's a little bit out of my area in terms of user experience, but there's a lot that the community needs to um, start kind of digesting about what this might look like and start thinking about what might be a, be a best practice in terms of like exposing this to, uh, you know, how, how are people going to interact with this new shard system? Um, yeah, it seems to me like all you need is a, a shard, uh, like at a, an address and the beacon chain can keep track of the address of the contract and tell you where the contract resides. It's a lookup, right? It's a distributed, it's a DHT basically. And and you can and and you, not even that like you can you can literally just say hey Beacon Chain has a a, a naming system sort of like kind of like ENS where you just say hey this is where all the contracts are right now. And one of the problems that like, I kind of see happening is I exist on shard 512, and then for some reason a Crypto Kitties pops up on 512, and they're bogging down my transactions because I'm on 512, and my application mm -hmm. is negatively impacted by this other application. Why can't right, I just right. move my application to a different shard? And to me, that should just be a simple kind of like state swap request put into the beacon chain that just kind of swaps everything over. 
Right. So, so some of this, uh, the beacon chain at this point, it's like, in terms of the state of the shards is very decoupled. Mm -hmm. Um, and for, uh, for simplicity in design, uh, once you, by decoupling the state of the shards and just linking them through these, um, Crosslinks and through the data availability proofs to prove that at least everything's available on the shards, uh, we can have a really clean beacon chain design. But in doing that, we lose the ability for the beacon chain to be this like load balancer mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that like the beacon chain is not responsible for um, like you could imagine a system, and I don't know the relative complexity of the system, but you could imagine a system where this core beacon chain thing is not only finalizing all the shards and finalizing itself and making the RNG, but it's also like monitoring uh, the load on each shard and like shifting things around. Um, that's a, something that has been discussed and something that's been thought about, but it's, it's a very, the, the complexity seems to uh, blow up pretty quickly. Um, right now, the idea is more of this um, economic load balancing in the sense that you're right, a CryptoKitty shows up on 512, and now I'm like, what the hell? Uh, transaction fees are so high. Uh, I might want to get the hell out of 512. Um, and is there a mechanism to do that? Uh, potentially. Uh, one, one version of uh, cross-shard communication is this idea of like yanking or locking uh, contracts where- Yeah, so uh, that Vitalik slides. Yeah, yeah, where I might uh, say I'm gonna, I'm trying to book a, a, a train ticket and a uh, hotel room and these exist on the, the hotel the contract that represents the hotel room uh and the contract that represents the train ticket are on a on separate shards i might yank the so there's like a hotel contract and it has individual contracts for each room i might yank the room contract over to the shard that has the train contract and now i um atomically book both um, but if we're, and this is, this is a mechanism, it's kind of, it's kind of like a lock, uh, but kind of, kind of a yank. And then I can, then I can send the contract back over. But if we have a mechanism for yanking and can give and can say a contract is allowed to be yanked, then we could, we could imagine, you know, if there's an owner of a contract, they could, they could be allowed to move it around. And maybe that's the only thing that they're allowed to do. Um, it seems to be a little bit of a dangerous design decision to start allowing people to move things around because it's like a lot of people are expecting, you know, somebody might expect your contract to exist on this shard. Um, and so you might this end up- I was thinking a shard lookup would be easier in that you could say this contract right. exists on this shard. Yeah, right yeah. Now. I, I, I understand. Um, it's interesting. That's something I need to think about a little bit more. But you're right. Like if you have a, it's like a memory memory management table or something, like yeah. virtual memory table. It's where small. You're like, yeah, shouldn't be that big. I mean, like it wouldn't increase by a tremendous amount. I mean, it would increase by the number of contracts that are deployed, but not not like a ludicrous amount. And it could all exist in the beacon chain. And then you could just say this shard exists on this place at this present crystallized state. And you can only swap over on crystallized states. Yeah, interesting. Um, Probably not going to go in the initial design, but something I'm going to chew on a little bit. <laughs> All right. I think, uh, I think we should start to wrap here. Um, 
first off, thanks for coming on and especially going longer than normal and answering a lot of these questions. I think it's going to serve a tremendous value to the community as a whole. And as I know, a lot of people have very similar questions because they're asking me them. Um, is there anything that we didn't get to that you think we should have or anything you'd like to say to the community overall? Um, I think we covered most of it without like getting into the crazy, crazy nitty gritty. Um, I would say that, yeah, we do, um, we do a, a East 2.0 implementers call every two weeks. We have one tomorrow on Thursday. I don't know when this call is actually going to come out, but Thursday, September 12th, um, there's like five or six teams now implementing the new protocol. Uh, I know Parity is actually going to be on our next call. They're getting excited about the spec as it's solidified. And they're going to be, they're interested in starting to implement the new protocol. Um, there's a lot going on. There's a lot still to do. Um, if you're a developer, get involved. A lot of these guys have are using the tag on their GitHub, uh, good first issue. That's a great, that's how I got involved with the ecosystem in general. I just started working on Piper's Python repos because we had good first issues. And I was like, oh, cool. This is a great way to get started. Um, so get involved, help out. This shit doesn't build itself. Um, if you're more of a community member, uh, watch the calls. Just, you know, If you're interested in that kind of stuff, pretty cool stuff. Um, and we're going to have a lot of um, exciting things to talk about during DevCon. So if you're there, check it out. And if not, there's going to be super cool live streams. Um, you know, this, this stuff takes time, uh, but we're doing it right. And, uh, and it's coming. Awesome, Danny. Cool. Thanks a lot, man. Good luck with World War Three. And I, I guess guys, I, hope, I really appreciate you having me. I'll we'll also uh, see you at DevCon, so hopefully we can buy you a beer. <laughs> Take care. All right, thanks, guys.